This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jeff Denham. Now, Jeff has had an absolute smorgasbord of careers from treasure hunter to working in the wildland firefighting space and everything in between. So we discuss a host of topics from losing an arm in a fishing accident, surfing, the forever chemicals PFAS, the exciting new product Strong Water, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 600 episodes, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jeff Denham. Enjoy. Well, Jeff, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. No worries, mate. It's a privilege. So like so many people that come on the show, there was a kind of organic backstory. Uh, I had Spencer on the show, who is John Cena's stunt double. He had sent me a video of a amputee firefighter that had found a new way to combat wildland fires. I watched the video, was amazed by you know what we're going to talk about today, the strong water, but then reached out to you we had a, a great conversation and here we are so uh the, the we were talking just before we hit record on social media the pros and the cons but this is definitely a pro that we got to have this conversation today oh i appreciate it yeah who was that that pointed how did they find me through the free think video yes it was yeah. so, who was it uh spencer thomas so he is uh like i said uh, john cena's stunt double so he He's an amazing guy. His brother's actually a firefighter too. So I'm sure it was probably through his brother that he found your video. Oh, right on. Well, I'm glad it's circulating. We can use all the help we can get. Absolutely. Absolutely. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in um, Bonnie Dune, California, which is um, a little mountain town above Monterey Bay. Uh, a really neat spot. I overlook the whole bay. I'm in a redwood forest. Um, and I... I ground zero for a big fire that came through here in August of 2020 called the CZU fire. It was a lightning storm lit off about 300 fires simultaneously in the state. And um, I live in a, in a wooded area with lots of long driveways where you wouldn't on several hundred acre properties where you wouldn't typically meet your neighbors, but the CZU fire came along and I um, chose not to evacuate. And with one of my engines and uh, put together a sort of a bandito crew of firefighters, a ragtag group of kids from the neighborhood. And we stood our ground and were able to save a lot of the neighbors' houses. So um, I feel really at home now here because I um, have met so many people and they've been so appreciative. It's a cool place to live. 
All right, well, I'm jumping way, way ahead to, you know, what you're doing now, but just to kind of pull from that for a second, you have a product, um, Strong Water, which I called Smart Water by mistake earlier, and we had a whole conversation <laughs> about the aggressive marketing of that. <laughs> um, did you apply that? Did you use that in a proactive yeah. prevention way to save your home? Yep, I had what's called a slip-in unit, which is a uh, basically a proportioner and a water tank and a pump and a hose reel that I put in my pickup truck, literally. And our product can be used in a number of different capacities. And one is in exposure protection, um, like San Bernardino County Fire, the largest county agency in the country. So the county's the size of Rhode Island. The chief there, Chief Shane Glaze, division chief, had been using it for about seven years in engines um, in a, a response team that goes out ahead of the fire um, to protect structures by spraying them with our product in like a, a quarter inch to a half inch thick layer of gel for a, a lack of a better term and it prevents the structures from burning and i was able to do that in my neighborhood i was able to lay down wet lines and grass fields to present prevent them from burning up to structures so um you know just another um <laughs> proof point for the technology um and the neighbors were certainly appreciative that's for sure <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure. It's, it reminds me, when I was at Anaheim, we had, and it wasn't your product, it was, you know, something, I guess, that was trying to do the same thing, but, um, and it was a blue gel that I remember, and this would have been back in 06, 07, probably. Um, that would have probably been thermogel. I think that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I love the concept, because obviously that wildland interface, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, urban municipal fire departments, that's really what we're there to protect. Yes, they had strike teams that went deep into the, you know, to the, the wildland itself. But our goal was to protect, you know, those houses that were on the on the edge there. And it did seem like a great tool, especially Anaheim specifically, there was a lot of woodshake sh um, shingle, you know, roofs and walls. There was pine needles all over the place, um, you know, eucalyptus. So there were a lot of, you know, um, huge, huge potential um, uh fuel sources that this would be a great benefit to try and save some of those structures or at least buy us enough time to get up there and knock it down yeah we call it exposure protection i call it playing defense I, I you know personally i feel like if you're on the ground running around saving structures one by one you already lost the fight you've got to take the fight to the air we've got to respond more quickly to these fires and stop them before they grow out of control easier said than done um, which is why we exist. I'm, I'm just trying to give our first responders better tools. Um, those first generation gels um, were somewhat problematic in that they were, a lot of them were toxic. They, um, they clogged lines. They had oil as a carrier, so they were slippery. They required special equipment to apply them. Where we solved a lot of those problems, our, our product plugs and plays through a proportioning system found on most fire engines, certainly in the West Coast with these brush rigs. Um, and it proportions out into the water stream um, at about a 1.5 to 2% concentration rate per gallon. And it sticks to a structure of up to 15 hours in direct sunlight. So it gives the firefighter the ability to get ahead of the fire front and coat structures that are in harm's way. As you know, most places don't burn from direct flame impingement. They burn from embers or um, trees and fuel sources in and around the house that happen to catch from embers or spotting ahead of a fire front. Um, but what we're really excited about is the use of the application in, in the aviation sector. And there's um, the emergence of some new tactics that are coming along that really favor our product for initial attack 
direct attack suppression tactics. Beautiful. I want to get to that, but you have such an incredible life story. I want to, you know, lead you through that journey first and then we'll end back up at um, Strong Water. Um, so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yep. Okay. Uh, I was born in Boston and um, I was raised in southern coastal Maine. Um, my dad was in the military for a, a stint and my mother um, and then he got out of the military, met my mom in college. Uh, she got a nursing degree. He became a chemical engineer um, and then moved to Southern Maine, about an hour north of Boston, which uh, fortuitously, because I would have hated to have grown up. I love Boston, but I'm not really a city boy. So I grew up in a really cool little seacoast town. Um, we moved to Rhode Island later on in life, another coastal area in New England. Um, and really uh, two siblings a brother and a sister, and we're all very close. My brother's a firefighter and a full-time lobsterman, a Maine lobsterman, um, intercoastal lobsterman. Um, and his um, firefighting, you know, one day on, three days off, enables him to maintain both careers. He is retiring from the fire department next year. And um, I think he's going to hang up his hat as a fisherman too and move out to Montana and do some hunting for a bit. My sister is a teacher. She's now a mother and a full-time bus driver for her kids. And um, they live in Rhode Island and we're all close. Um, let's see from, I went to a private school um, in Massachusetts, a small private school, played a lot of sports, hockey, track, things like that. And then um, went to college for a year and a half in Boston. And it just wasn't my gig. I was there, you know, I, I just really, uh, attention span issues and didn't see myself in a cubicle. And I was in these large classes where I was felt trapped and I'm always been more of a hands-on guy. And I, I uh, spent a summer fishing in Alaska. Um, I had, well, back up a little bit. I've been working in Boston while I was in college on boats. So I get my mate's license in the summertime running boats, Harbor boats, cruise boats um, and commuter vessels. And then in the evening, um, the party boats. So I was getting a lot of sea time, was able to establish um, sort of a merchant marine career. Um, and then when I went to Alaska, started working on boats up there, I had a, a you know, already a head of steam and spent several years um, based in Seattle and working primarily on the Bering Sea as a mariner. Um, and then the summer of 93, obviously those boats are, are dangerous places. I'd seen a lot of of um, pretty gnarly stuff in those years. And uh, it wasn't a question of if it's when you're going to get hurt up there and how bad is it going to be? And summer of 93, we were in, um, I was on a dragger fishing for cod, um, dragging a midwater net and we were in really bad seas. Um, I had worked a lot of shifts and was really tired and groggy. And I was working um, near an exposed drive shaft in the engine room of the boat and we got hammered by an odd set of waves flipped the boat i lost my balance and fell into a, uh, a high revolution drive shaft sucked me in and ripped my arm apart um broken clavicle um sprained my neck ribs i bled out we were able to actually physically clamp my brachial artery to stop me from completely bleeding out we got a, my shoulder sucked out of the joint because the shaft was suck, continuing to suck me in. And um, 
I had a, another shipmate next to me. I was reaching for a shutoff valve that was feet away from me, like sort of on autopilot. And they shut it down. It took him a couple hours to get me out of the machine. Very fortunate to get a tourniquet around my shoulder um, and stop the bleeding, pack the whole thing in ice, stuff me in a gurney, um, brought me up to the wheelhouse. And it was, um, I spoke to my parents on a satellite phone in Maine. And honestly, at that point, given knowing how far out to sea we were, how bad the weather was, um, I thought it might have been a goodbye call, quite frankly. But I was able to survive um, 18 hours on board before I was medevaced off the ship to an island called St. Paul, which is a small island in the middle of the Bering Sea. And there I met a, a, a rescue jet that flew me to Sitka when a doctor boarded. They stabilized me even further and made the decision to fly me to Seattle where there were some top-notch surgeons waiting um, that were there to potentially save what was left of my arm. But once we arrived, my arm had been cut off from the blood supply for so long that all the tissue was necrotic. And so there was zero possibility of saving any of it. And uh, they put me to sleep and I woke up with a, a missing right arm. I'm, I'm missing my arm above the elbow, um, mid humorous, not funny. <laughs> and uh, so I've had to kind of reinvent many different wheels in my life to keep moving forward. And I, you know, I, I it's funny because I mentioned this a lot and this surgeon guy was an athlete too. And I was a very athletic guy. You know, I surfed. I love big mountain skiing, which is one of the reasons I positioned myself in Alaska. I like to race mountain bikes and motorcycles and do all kinds of stupid stuff. And so, you know, you're a young guy, I'm 26 years old, turned 27 in the hospital. And you're thinking to yourself, like, how, like, how am I going to live? You know, how am I, gonna, these things are so important to me. As you get older, they become less important. And, you know, like, Certainly as a firefighter, you, you recognize real quick what's important in life and what really matters. But these things at the time seemed like everything to me. And all those thoughts were going through my head. And this surgeon knew it. And he stopped and he said, listen, man, he goes, I can tell you're a go-getter. And that you've probably got a lot of scary things going through your mind right now. And it's, it's really complicated, but it isn't. He said, it's, it's simple. It's on or off up or down, you're going to make a choice. Either you're going to move forward and you're going to continue to go up or you're going to let this take you down. Um, don't get caught up in all these um, shades of gray and different nuances. You need to make a decision. And he was right. And I did right there. I was in, in the hospital for several weeks in my first um, recovery phase. And I was already designing like arms with spear. I was a diver and, uh, um, we can get into that in a little bit, commercial diver. And I was already designing like spear gun arms and um, mountain bike arms in my mind with shocks on them and all, I had all this weaponry I could put into the arms, basically. So, um, you know, and it, it, honestly, people ask, you know, people wonder how I was able to recover so well. And I, I always refer back to, the, to my family. My parents just, we had such a good upbringing and I was taught really important lessons and the basics in life. And I was given this incredible foundation from my parents that my 
rickety little shack sits on. And so it was from there that I was able to persevere, quite frankly. Now, you talked about the sleep element. Um, I'm sure your brother's probably, you know, made you aware of sleep deprivation and fire service. It's interesting because where he is, as you said, one day on three days off, 2472, a lot of the country is, is one day on two days off. So 2448, which is a 56 hour work week before any other extra work for your mandatory or anything. And the sleep deprivation I see is, is, destructive in so many other areas so talk to me about on a, on a fishing ship i mean what does your sleep cycle look like because ultimately that led to a near fatal accident the sleep um deprivation in the alaskan fisheries is a big deal um they this was sort of back in the the uh, wild west you know the late 80s early 90s of the alaskan fisheries and certainly before that it was even more rogue and they've um, in there are a lot more rules now and and control mechanisms. But you know, I was working twelve on, twelve off. That could easily turn to fourteen on, ten off, sixteen on, eight off, and you're at sea um, working manually and in jobs that required a lot of attention because people things would break and you're a small little village on a big boat in the middle of the ocean and you've all got to do a job to keep all the plates spinning or things go sideways fast and i we had had really crappy weather and a lot of things were breaking leading up to when i got hurt so i had worked a lot of hours to cover other people uh, to address issues and i was you know i think i was on i had gotten three or four hours sleep in a 72 hour period. And so I was, you know, I'm a very athletic guy. And I'd like to think that I w- if I wasn't so tired and groggy, I-, I would have had better balance or been more aware of the odd list and corrected appropriately and not have fallen where I did, but um, it happened. And I think sleep deprivation um, was a big part of it. So I want to kind of walk through the mental and physical recovery because I've, I've heard you talk about it on another podcast. And I thought it was you know, a very powerful story in itself. But before we do, while I remember so I don't forget as we move on, many people that have come on this podcast, many in the uniform profession, many outside, find themselves in professions that are very dangerous. Um, and when you look back in early life, there are elements of, tra- of childhood trauma as well. I think some of the uniform professions, you know, we're drawn to it because we want to be a protector, maybe we want to break a cycle. But there's also an element where the adrenaline is is a distraction from maybe other things underlying. When you look back now, and I know, you know later on we'll talk about mental health and TBIs, but when you look back now, were there any elements of your upbringing that you would consider traumatic that maybe led you towards some of the extreme sports and, and fishing and diving and some of these professions that you were in? No, you know what it is. I there were there was no trauma that led me to to seek out adventurous activities. Um, but I will say this: I, I, you know, that ADD thing was real when I was young, and um, obviously, as an older man, I've you know I've got that under wraps um, and have um, adapted. Um, but. For me to pay attention, I need to be fully catalyzed, and it takes high-intensity situations to do that. And so I'm drawn to them because I find moments of peace and clarity, it seems, under pressure 
Um, I get like, if I'm in a, like in college, I was in a, a calculus class with 300 people and the monotone, boring professor. And I just, my mind was everywhere else, but where it needed to be. But when I'm under high intensity situations, I'm, I, I was able to focus. And so I think that's why I've been drawn to adventurous undertakings. And that night I, uh, I, I wrote a, a paper freshman year in college in a uh, debate class, or it was a public speaking class. And I, I said in the paper that I, I was going to avoid the five C's and that was commuting cubicles and conforming corporate culture. And then I dropped out the next semester because <laughs> I was on a mission to avoid the five C's. <laughs> well, just going backtracking for a second. What were you dreaming of becoming when you were in high school? And then how did that take you to Alaska well, I, on a boat? Yeah, yeah I, well, I went to college to be an architect and I was in that program. Um, and then I just, one, you know, there was no Instagram when I was entering the fisheries. And so when I first got a glimpse of Alaska and being an adventurous guy and a skier and all that, I was just like, there was no question where I wanted to be. And it was there. And I met guys that were on the boats that were pilots, bush pilots, guides, hunting guides, ski mountain guides, search and rescue guys. I mean, it was just more of a, a tradesman environment that attracted me. And, the, and it was the Wild West. And so, you know, I took a look at Kenmore Square in Boston and I took a look at Girdwood, Alaska and Alaska won. <laughs> so back to the, the incident where you lost your arm then, um, you know, that you had this, fortunately, this, this surgeon that had an athletic background that, that, you know, showed you you were at a crossroads of one of two ways. Um, walk me through the physical therapy route because I know that was kind of interesting story and then what about mentally 26 year old extreme athlete who is now missing one of their four limbs yeah um well that the the doctor was a high altitude climber among other things he was a triathlete and he had climbed Everest so the guy was pretty gnarly I respected him and he was a neurosurgeon that was in there to try to fix my arm um so incredible guy um but my recovery was, it was amazing because I, I, you know, I've always been self-driven to, to be a better athlete. I train myself and I've been really inquisitive about food and, and alternative training. You know, now there's just so much out there, right? But um, I walked into physical therapy my first day at, you know, several weeks after losing the limb and I'm all sutured up with staples. And I don't mean any offense by saying this at all, but I looked at my physical therapist and there were all these people that were out in terrible shape and they're uh, they're They busted out their lunch and they're eating like processed food. And I, I just turned around first day, walked out and I literally started climbing stairs with a weight vest on, went to the pool. I ripped staples out of my arm. I had a bag and duct tape over my arm and started doing the learning how to do the breaststroke with one arm and started swimming laps and got a bike set up as soon as I could wear a prosthesis. Cause that area is so tender and swollen. I had to have a bunch of different revisions, post um, trauma surgeries after the recovery to do nerve type prepare, preparing my body for the use of a prosthetic and once I was able to get on a prosthetic, I, got, I built one for mountain biking. 
I got a mountain bike. I figured out how to get all the controls over. So I really didn't follow a traditional physical therapy regime. I put myself through a crucible of a of events over the next year. I mean, I was literally within four months of, of being hurt. I drove my truck out to Colorado and skied like a hundred days in a row that winter. And that set my head straight. And it proved to me, you know, yeah, was I impaired? Was I hindered from where I was? Was I hindered from what I could have been? Yes. But I stopped real, you know, and this may sound bad as well. I, I joined the U S disabled ski team and I trained with them. I had no ski, ski racing background, but I, a very strong skier. I've been skiing since I was two. I was more of a, you know, a big mountain backcountry guy and adventurous. And I got in with that group and here were a bunch of guys, a lot of them incredible, but I, I, I just had a really hard time being surrounded by people that were really focusing on dis- a disability. And I, I convinced myself, I'm like, I'm not disabled. I have a fucking scar. Right. So and I've got scars all over my body. I've broken multiple bones and stitches and this and that. So that's how I positioned it in my mind. I mean, I'm, you, people can look at me as disabled. They can classify. But if you join an organization like that, to me at the time, it was classifying myself as something that I didn't want me part of and I didn't accept. And so that's what's driven me um, from then to now. And I've, uh, you know, I've I've excelled as a relatively well as an action sports athlete. I still ski big mountains. I hang with some of the best guys in the world can ski turn for turn. I'm not hucking 150 foot cliffs, but I can ski 70 miles an hour on a 50 degree slope and, and keep up. And I've been able to mountain bike at a pretty high level. I've dialed that back. The crashers are pretty bad. I'm at a stage where I just don't need to break my neck. Um, I, and I've dialed that back, but I've surfed built a bunch of different aquatic devices. I paddleboarded in the world championships from Molokai to Oahu, 32 miles across that channel five times, um, all types of all different, you know, kite surfing and regular surfing. And as a result of my uniqueness and um, I think my can-do spirit, I was picked up by Patagonia as one of their athletes in 2007 as a surfing ambassador, um, which is a huge honor. They're a company that I've always admired, um, led by a founder who was a, a pioneer in the big mountain climbing world, uh, something that I didn't excel at myself, but I was certainly familiar with his story. So when they approached me to represent the brand, um, I'm really honored and I still work for them um, and have been intricately involved in, in a bunch of different environmental um, initiatives they have going and all parts of the company including being trying to kill myself on a surfboard on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you surfing prior to the accident? A little bit. Yeah, I, I, had, I had found surfing from a guy I worked with in Alaska. Um, and I traveled a couple times to Mexico. And I, I, guys that know surfing, I learned to surf in a place called Puerto Escondido. I went in there with a green belt and um, came out with a I uh, went in with a white belt and came out with a brown belt pretty quick because if you don't, you drown. And so this, the hook was set um, early, but I, I, you know, I wasn't a lifelong surfer growing up in Maine and just didn't have access to it. But I was a waterman. We grew up on boats, the family owned boats. I, I, I became a diver early. Um, I water skiing since I was five years old, um, open water swimmer, um, you know, 
motorcycles, dirt bikes, hockey, you know, constant sports. So um, when I found surfing and, and discovered the power, the true power of, of sort of medium to big waves in Mexico, I was hooked immediately because it was, again, it was like this catalyzing intensity for me. And there's just, it's a, it's not a constraining sport. It's not a sport with a lot of rules. It's just open canvas and it's you against, or you working with mother nature in her most powerful form. And that's the thing I liked about Alaska the most was just the grandeur, the size of the mountains. Um, and it's not, it was, wasn't competition. It was just survival. You know, how, how well can I do in this environment? How far can I go? And then when you're working at, on the Bering Sea, Anybody that's been there for, um, you know, a relevant, relatively long amount of time learns that you're not in charge. You're not in control. You either learn how to dance with Mother Nature or she's going to take you out. And so for me, that surfing represents that. It's just this engagement with forces that are way more powerful than I ever will be. Well, it's interesting. I had uh, Bethany Hamilton on the show a little while ago. And again, you had... You know, a young girl at a time, she loses an arm to a shark attack. And it's the same mindset. She didn't want to surf in the adaptive arena. She wanted to surf against the girls she'd been surfing against before. And so she figured out how she could get through, you know, the initial waves and, and catch a wave and all that stuff. And, you know, incredibly frustrating at first. But she found a way around it to be able to surf side by side with the people she used to compete with. And and when you talk about kind of your mindset with, uh, you know, the disabled team, it sounds to be the same. Like, let me figure out how I can get back to what I was doing before just with some extra scars. It, what those guys do on the U.S. disabled ski team and with where disabled sports have come is amazing. It just wasn't at the time in that critical moment of my life where I was trying to, I, I, come to terms with my new physical identity it didn't work for me and I, I you know I've just always been sort of more independent and stubborn and non-conformist the five C's right and um, so I, I know Bethany very well I was I went and visited her shortly after she was injured and stayed with her family I had I've had the good luck of having six inches of my arm left so I've developed a device that I use for surfing and paddleboarding and kiteboarding and actually glues to my arm with a skin adhesive. And um, I have different attachments on the end for different types of water sports. Surfing is a rubber tip paddle. I can push on the board to stabilize and push up with one arm. She didn't have that luxury. She was taken clean at the shoulder and has no articulation of, of, you know, that an arm would provide. And so she's had to adapt to paddling strictly from one side and getting up um, with one arm. She's lucky as a goofy foot, she has her right arm. So when she pushes up, she can get her right leg under that arm and get up. I'm a goofy foot missing my right arm. So getting up for me, I go switch foot sometimes with my strong side. It's more of an effort to get my leg 34 inch, I'm 6'2", 34 inch inseam up and under my small paddling device because there's a limit to how long it can be based on the leverage and the forces applied to it in the water. It is only, I had arrived at a sweet spot in design based on trial and error. And it's only so long. Um, it's shorter than, you know, it's basically where your arm would end at the elbow. That's how long it is, but I'm able to lift it out of the water and pull and create thrust 
So I'm like 70, 30, 70% of my powers on the left, 65, 35 on a good day. I'm on a paddle board and then getting up, I'm able to press the prosthesis down on the board to stabilize it, which she has to do with one. She puts her hand right in the middle of the board. I mean, she, let's face it, folks. She was a way better surfer than I was when she got hurt. And she still is. Um, the girl's incredible, incredible woman. She's a mother now. And I know her husband and kids and they're just they're really amazing family. This is kind of the silver lining to this is I, you know, I, I serve as an inspiration to so many people. And I've also approached by people when they get injured and hurt. So I get, I, I do a lot of outreach and I wouldn't say formal counseling, but I certainly have become friends with a lot of people that are going through these big transitions and, and challenges in their life. And it's enriched my life immensely. Yeah, she was an amazing human. I mean, we actually stayed friends online, but um, it was such a powerful moment as a parent because my son had just watched watched her film and um, read the book as well. Yeah, and so then you know he actually kind of reminded me. Of course, I knew who she was, and I wonder if I can you know reach out to her and was able to find a way through some mutual friends. And she came on, and just the the look on my son's face when he got to talk to her over Zoom for for a couple minutes was prices i will never forget that but yeah i mean again just just an incredible story but you know same as yours and so many people that come on here some you know lost limbs some had other you know traumas in their lives but just like you talked about with your your doctor you know you can either go up or you can go down and ultimately that's the message from some of these people that come on yeah there's a lot of noise going through your head at least there were was for me in that critical moment he helped me um cancel out a lot of that noise static it would otherwise get in the way. Clear the deck. Because another thing with the ADD, I like. I need to be. If I'm in a, in a distracting environment, I fail. So I keep everything feng shui, man. Clear the deck. No junk. No extra. No superfluous crap. It's just like clear it all out and focus on the objective. And that's like I find with. I, I like to surf larger waves. I've um, been relatively successful as a big wave guy, which is a very small niche in the surfing world, you know, there are millions of surfers. There are only a couple hundred people that actually take on the ocean in its rawest and and largest form. Um, and um, I find that in those really intense moments in the water, my attention span is just more catalyzed than it, it than it ever is at any other moment in my life. You know, like it's just everything's so crystal clear and simple. When you're staring down a 60 foot wall of water and you have to turn and position to go rather than run. Right. And to me, that's, you know, you know, I, 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 I certainly not, there are so many great big wave riders now and it's been, it's been really inspiring to be around them. Some of the guys I've met and women too, they're, they're incredible. Like the girls these days are just stepping it up and it's a, it's a neat crew to be a part of shenanigans i call it it pales in comparison to firefighting but oh know, i don't think so <laughs> i think it pales of life. It's the color of life. <laughs> i think yeah. it's you know on par at least if not you know even more impressive but um i think that's what i see as well with surfing diving skydiving whatever when it comes to s- some of our men and women that are battling you know pts ptsd whatever acronym people want to use is that presence, you know, when you're falling through the air, when you're, you know, 20 meters under, when you're riding a wave, 
you have no choice but to be proud. Even something as as trivial, you know, comparatively as jujitsu, when there's someone trying to choke you out, you're mm-hmm. not thinking about your gas bill at that moment. You're thinking about not dying. So, you know, I think <laughs> all those areas that you're talking about, that's what I see works a lot for people that are, you know, transitioning out of some of these professions and need to refine that presence that maybe they had as a cop or a firefighter. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I'm sure I certainly was burdened with PTSD, but I put it in a box after losing my arm. And, you know, I've, I've broken my back skiing. I've broken ribs. I've broken my nose. I've broken fit, my foot surfing in a toe strap, all the bones in my foot, broke my lower leg skiing. I mean, I've a lot of trauma and never really unpacked my bags until um, 2016, February, 2016, I ski in at Squaw Valley with some friends on a powder day, these really high level, um, skiers that, so we were in fifth gear hauling ass and I clipped one of my buddies and tomahawked over a cliff. I fractured my skull and broke my back again, a separate back injury and, um, sustained a major TBI. You know, I, I was in the hospital in the looking in the mirror and slurring my words and here I am running a firefighting contracting business and trying to leverage this strong water technology into the industry and playing uh, entrepreneur and I'm now I can't talk well very long story summarized I um I started experiencing um nightmares and depression that the brain injury caused and what it was was the PTSD from losing a, long, a limb and all these ex- other and having seen people die at sea in, in, in Alaska and having experienced, you know, a lot of different small traumas in my life. Um, it all came to a head after the, in that injury and I was forced to address it. <clears throat> um, and I had another really good doctor that recommended a bunch of alternative means in which to come to terms. And I finally, for the first time in my life, sought out counseling and talked about the things that had happened to me or the things that I put myself through, quite frankly. I, you know, I, you make choices in life. You know, I choose to work on a dangerous boat in the Bering Sea. I'm not a victim. I made those choices. I knew the danger. I got hurt. It's on me. Right. And so I look at all these injuries and experiences of my life you know, other than when you're a little kid, it's on me. And I had never been forced to really address them in a healthy manner until this brain injury. And then I did. And so again, um, because of some traumatic incident in my life, um, I've grown in ways that I never would have and um, sought out means in which to recover and overcome that specific or particular adversity or injury and I'm a better person for it. There's been a lot of Navy SEALs on the show. Um, actually, I'm getting the founder of this organization, um, Marcus Capone, on next week. But so many of them have had incredible success with psilocybin and or ibogaine. And then it's mm-hmm. interesting because when you look at TBI, um, which sleep deprivation actually mimics, you know, demyelination of the, the nerve sheath, um, the only thing that I'm aware of right now that truly has been shown to repair that damage is psilocybin, which is also interesting. So you talked about finding a counselor. Talk to me about your road through psychedelics. Yeah, uh, I was 
um, referred down that road. And I live in Northern California, Santa Cruz, California, which is sort of the bastion for alternative um, everything. <laughs> and um, so I it was, um, you know, someone I had been reading about it for years. And what amazed me was that there were like these PhD engineers in Silicon Valley that were optimizing their ability to code through microdosing. And um, certainly it was um, presented to me after this brain injury. Now, mind you, I've been knocked out probably a half a dozen times in the, in the seven years leading up to that mountain bike and several times in big waves. And I've been knocked out twice skiing before tomahawking, you know, and, and never really, and always just shrugged it off. I wore a 40 foot wave on the head. It knocked me out. I came, I breathed water. I came to woke up vomiting on my board, went home, fell asleep because of the brain injury, got a phone call and went out drinking with a bunch of buddies that night. So, I mean, how much damage have I done? Right. And so at this point, I, I realized that this, this injury, the skiing injury, the brain injury was like the domino that set everything else falling over. And, um, so when someone suggested that I start these, um, uh, you know, I did ayahuasca um, and, and we were with a, with a psychiatric counselor and unpacked so much. I told her, speaking of Navy SEALs, I hang out with a bunch of those guys. But I, I told this girl, I said, listen, young lady, because I'm, you know, I'm not a giant guy, but I'm a capable physical 6'2", you know, 200 pounds is this little girl. I said, you know, when, when, you, when my demons come out, you might want some Navy SEALs in the room. And she's like, oh, no, honey, don't worry about it. I deal with this all the time. You'll be fine. <laughs> I'm like, you don't want my demons coming out in this room when you're alone. And so anyway, long story short, I got on a program and um, microdosed for uh, the better part of a year. And it was like ripping cobwebs out of my soul. It just like cleared the deck and reset my mind and um, healed the damage of all these repeated brain traumas that I'd had over the year. And certainly the big one that happened at Squaw, it was um, February of 2016. It's amazing because that's the, the kind of unseen missing piece. When I think of, you know, my career, um, you know, there's 14 years of seat deprivation, which is half the career of a lot of firefighters. But then when I look back, I, I've been a stunt performer for 20 years, um, did martial arts. So I've, <laughs> some schools will just like Fight Club, you know, where, you know, leave with perforated eardrums and, you know, broken noses and dislocated jaws. So I'm like, okay, there's probably some brain trauma there. Um, and actually took a pretty hard fall snowboarding with my son just over a year ago. And it was one of those days where I should have been on skis, you know, retroactively. It was just too icy for a snowboard and was mm -hmm. flying down a, a hill, hit a spot, and it just immediately 180 degree rotation and landed on the back of my helmet thank god Slap. but it cleaned my clock it cleaned my clock pretty good and it knocked the air out of me as well um so when you look back like, okay any any human that's kind of getting outside their bubble a little bit is probably getting whacked on the head a few times so you know if you're doing counseling and some of these other things you're like why the fuck isn't this working the, over and over and over again, I hear these stories of where that's kind of the missing piece, like whether it's yeah. just unlocking a box that you can't get to through traditional therapy or whether it's, you know, truly healing through the medication, the therapeutic element, the the number of people that I hear with success with that and then the irony that 
you either have to sneak around in this country or go to another country to do it, quote unquote, legally, is another complete irony, especially in the SEAL community where these men and women have, have fought for this country and have to go overseas to get the treatment for what they yeah, brought home. It's a shame. That's the corporate, that's the corporations, lobbies that don't want to contend with um, real medicine. Mother Nature produces our, our medicine. We've moved away from it, starting with our diets. I mean, I could go on for four hours on that, but I mean, I eat a, I'm a 100% organic guy. Um, I fast during the day, mostly light vegetables, very light protein sources to give, give my digestive system, um, you know, a rest during the day. It requires so much energy. And then I eat my big fat heavy meal at night and I, eat, uh, I I'm on sort of that hunter gatherer diet. I mean, there's a lot of different terms for it. It was Mark Sisson's book originally, the primal blueprint that really I instinctively was eating that way. And I've always instinctively gone to get away from pesticides and chemicals for obvious reasons. And a lot of people can't afford to, that's the sad part of it, of the American story is that to eat really well, it costs a fortune to get alternative healthcare that um, <clears throat> may provide more benefits than traditional Western medicine that's covered by insurance it costs a fortune. I mean, it's, it's, and it's getting more and more expensive as we move forward. And I, again, I being living here in central California in the bastion of the organic food belt with the supply chain to those, those types of foods is really strong. The prices are a little bit lower here, but you can't here in Indiana or Ohio or North Dakota in the middle of the winter, you can't get that stuff at Walmart or, or Costco. It's hard. And so, um, and if you could, could the average family afford it? It's kind of a bummer. But back to the microdosing, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a druggy partier. I, I, I get high on adrenaline and I like to do sports. So druggy partier doesn't fit for me, right? So there's all these stigmas associated with the psychedelic, you know, Grateful Dead world. And, you know, there's these associations that were established in the sixties in this country that the, the government and the law enforcement and a lot of people latched onto. And so there's this misassociation with these, um, the healing properties of these medicines that are produced in nature that exist out there that can help. And they're, the science now has been really well-researched and there's dozens of books, as you know, out on it. And some of the most um, influential practitioners of this neurotropic sciences are based here in the Bay Area. So I was lucky to stumble into it. Yeah, and with the um, the organic farming element too, it's sad because when you take a step back, why is the crap food cheaper? It shouldn't be. It has to go through all this transportation and processing versus grown from a farm and you buy it from the farmer. And that's how backward it's become. And I think that's sadly one of the takeaways that was so apparent during COVID, but has been completely disregarded is we need to put small farms back into communities. There was right. a complete, you know, bottleneck for the supply chain, whether it's an abattoir, whether it's just pure transportation versus subsidizing our local farmers to feed that community versus having to cover stuff in chemicals and irradiate it and transport it from other countries. And destroy all the soil, the earth's soil in the process. I mean, soil is a known quantity. I mean, the vector on when all our aggregable soil is gone is already known. There's an end date and time. 
it's cubic meters. We know what it is. And the large corporations are raping it, destroying it, the soil, our earth's ability to produce what, I mean, it's the way I look at food, it's real simple. Your DNA evolved for millions of years to function optimally on certain inputs that you evolved for millions of years to function on, right? And you either give it those things or you don't. And if you don't, our DNA hasn't continued to evolve to function on processed sugars and processed carbohydrates. It still wants that diet that it evolved to function well on over millions of years. It hasn't changed. So you need to figure out what that is and get back to it. And then again, it's just the availability and the cost of it is, are just huge inhibitors to people actually being able to take control of their own health. It's a bummer. Yeah, and it just needs to change. And we, I think that's the beautiful thing about you know this internet age we're in now, that dissemination of information. I'm hoping that slowly people are becoming educated of you know how they should eat, why it's more expensive, how to how to kind of at least cut some of the corners through farmers markets and go in and find local farmers that that cook, and then also you know demanding change when it comes to all the lobbying from these you know huge corporations that technically potentially can own our entire food source our entire you know water supply our entire air quality i mean you know like you said the soil there's a guy uh sad guru that was on joe rogan's podcast is just driving around the planet on a motorbike trying to you know bring that very point to light that you know yes we are unless we go back to the the traditional agriculture of of moving livestock and you know rotating through pastures we are literally going to end up with no nutrients in our soil whatsoever yep yep you know and it's these big systemic issues like i mean that's why i i you know as i started as a wildland firefighting contractor to augment my income while i worked for patagonia um an engine contractor um and when I got into it, I, I had really no conception of how big a deal wildfire was and how it was growing in, in, in intensity every year due to the climate change. Um, and I am a firm believer that human beings are causing climate change. Um, and so in, the, in as a contractor working on these fires, I sort of to learn more and more and more about the problems and they're global and they're massive and they're escalating. And so I've, you know, I, this is my, I guess my, my life's calling. It has evolved to, to be, to be catalyzed on trying to help um, mitigate that specific problem. Um, and which is why I created strong water or, hired people to create it i'm not that smart <laughs> <laughs> well i want to get to that in just a moment before we do because i'd hate to miss this you have another incredible chapter in your career which is the uh, underwater underwater archaeology so yeah. talk to me about your journey into that and then some of the amazing kind of dives and finds that you've had yeah well when i was in alaska i'd, I'd taken some courses at um in in commercial diving and i, I was a diver and i really enjoyed that the, you know, with one arm, I was never going to be able to make a living as a, a traditional commercial diver. But I, uh, back east is a crazy story. And surfing a hurricane swell um, 
They happen in the fall in New England and Southern New England's position to pick up these swells. And whenever a big spinner sits off Bermuda, it'll push a ground swell up and we get our best quality swell um, in the, um, in the fall period. I was down on Martha's Vineyard and in the water with this kid and this young guy named Brandon Clifford. And I'm out there surfing. There's a couple hundred people on the dunes watching because it was unusually large, perfect surf for the East coast. So we come in and I start chatting with him more and we walk over the dune and we meet his dad. And immediately I knew who his dad was. His dad is this famous undersea explorer that I knew found a pirate ship off of Cape Cod. And we hit it off. We had lunch and, um, I told him about my diving background, told him about my mariner background and working boats and things like that. And a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call. He wanted to interview me for a job. So I ended up fast forward. This guy gave me a shot at joining his dive team, his undersea exploration group. Um, he was notorious um, first for finding the first truly authenticated pirate ship in the world. It was found off Cape Cod and it was the Witta. The Witta ship was a, a galley that had been liberated from the Royal Navy from a pirate by the name of Black Sam Bellamy. And Sam was cruising up the eastern seaboard in April 1717, April 13, 1717, and he hit a big nor'easter. His boat was full of treasure, and he was going to hide it up in Maine, from what I understand, and he pitch-pulled and shattered on the ground off Cape Cod. And this guy, Barry Clifford, um, set about with his life's task to find this thing, and he did. And he authenticated it by finding the bell on the ship named Witta. So he actually proved that it was the pirate ship. Witta was um, the name of a slave trading port in Cote d'Ivoire in the Ivory Coast. And it was originally O-U-I-D-A-H, and the pirates changed uh, the – English, it was an English slave trading sh ship and Black Sam Bellaby was known for liberating the slave trading ships and making the slaves his crewmates in equal shares. So they were quite a formidable force, as you can imagine, um, these NFL linebackers with swords. <laughs> and a grudge. <laughs> and, a, and a grudge. I thought his story was so amazing. I was just, I'm such a champion of the underdog. He's just like, yes, I love this. Stick it to the Royal Navy. And um, or anybody else that's involved in slave trading, quite frankly. And so he took me on and um, I dove for him for years and worked on some pretty incredible projects. Um, I think the, the coolest one was in Madagascar. Uh, one, there was really good surf there in the Indian Ocean. And so I was stationed there for a long time and we found Captain Kidd's ship, another notorious pirate um, from the 1700s, the late 1700s. And um, the Adventure Galley um, was the name of the ship. And it was sunk in the, the lee of an island off the east coast of Madagascar called Nozi Baraja or Ile Saint-Marie. Um, and we found it and authenticated, dug it up and worked on that project. And I still do cameo dives with the group. Um, you know, I'm all in on firefighting and strong water now. And uh, I don't have time to freelance, if you will, but... I'll be back in New England in a couple of weeks, and I hope to get out with the team and do some dives on the Widow ship, which would, uh, a couple summers ago, we pulled up all these brass bracelets that were used as currency. They were slave trading bracelets, and they were 
There were thousands of them on the ship. We found hundreds of them. We hit a hot spot. So it's basically just blowing holes in the sand, which is always shifting off the Cape, magging spots with magnetometers and metal detectors. You've got full face gear, calm, so you can communicate with each other and the boat on the surface and excavating the zone um, and pulling up, you know, they've pulled up cannons and tons of stuff off that wreck. There's still, there's a big um, museum in Hyannisport um, on the Cape, which is a pirate treasure museum that Barry manages and his son, Brandon, who is an incredible um, action sports athlete in his own right. He could care less about being famous, but the kid got second in the world on the international free skiing tour to Shishere in like 96. Um, There's like a natural, like big mountain skier dropping 200 footers, lived in Crested Butte, ripping surfer, or an amazing, like pro level kiteboarder. The kid can do anything. He's just this humble guy and he's taken over the company. His dad's getting old now and he's got three kids and he lives out in Cape Cod and he spends the summers scraping around the bottom of the ocean in there kickstarting the Madagascar project again. They've got a film company that wants to do, we filmed with Discovery Channel in 1999 and the movie was called The Quest for Captain Kid. It was the most watched show on Discovery Channel that year. Well, speaking of television, I did a show on the History Channel as a as an actor when I lived out in California and I'm a horrible actor, let me preface that. <laughs> um, and it was called True Pirates of the Caribbean and the Captain Kid was what? one of the ones they talked about, yeah. So not the Johnny Depp movie, this really awful docu-series uh, or documentary. And it was, you know, it was informative, but we were the actors that were kind of, you know, portraying some of this. And uh, yeah, that they gave me like a Brian May from Queen Wig. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was it was terrible. I had like three lines in the whole thing. But it was fun, you know, being on this mock-up of this pirate ship and they actually fire cannons and all those kind of things. But yeah, Captain Kidd was one of the, the characters that he they was, talked he about. He was a wild man. He was a Navy officer that defected and... The ship we found, they were, he was sailing from Asia down and around. I mean, these guys were animals, right? Like, we're such pussies now. I mean, really, <laughs> quite frankly. Well, I, mean, I was you, on the Royal Caribbean ship recently. It's just a similar experience. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, even I'd be the longest thing I did at sea was 72 days on a boat in the Bering Sea. And is that, but we are, you know, we've got satellite radios and radar and everything else working in our favor and weather faxes at the time weather faxes which is now real-time weather monitoring through satellites obviously so but these guys would hop in these wooden boats and just i'm still just in awe of how gnarly these guys were kid was one of them so it was really cool to work on that project ultimately i got tired of living out of a bag and being in hot sweaty malaria and i got malaria malaria infested zones and um i hung up my hat well it's an amazing story i'm glad that we got to that thank you just very quickly how deep was the the wreck that you were diving the one um the one in madagascar was only in 30 40 feet in this bay most wrecks are in kind of shallow spots it's where they're wrecks and the one of the off the cape is similar 30 or 40 feet that thing pitch pulled that was the largest recorder weather event in weather event history and there were people living obviously in in Massachusetts since the 16, early 1600s. Um, so there was already well-established and there were testimony of hundred foot breakers breaking off the Cape. It Cape's a big sweeping sand arm of 
glacial deposited sand as the glaciers receded and left this pile of sand off the east coast of New England. And there are thousands of shipwrecks because back in the day when you didn't have any navigation, storms blew everybody right into it. Those southwesterly winds and storms would drive ships right up onto the shoals. And this weather event in 1717, April of 1717, it was purportedly the largest recorded weather event um, in the eastern seaboard, even bigger than the perfect storm in 1991. Yeah, it's funny. I had Sebastian Junger on the show a few times, so that's, a, that's oh, an amazing cool. story. Yeah, I lived in, I knew Sebastian and uh, loved his book, and he lived in Provincetown, Mass, at the tip of the Cape, where our dive organization was based. So I saw him in the town a couple of times. We're not buddies, but I know he's famous, obviously. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing man, writer. Though. Yeah, he's a smart man. And you look at, I mean, you know, especially recently, he'll. I mean, Tribe was an amazing book, and then years go by, and then he just released Freedom. I think about a year ago now, but you know, he'll he'll wait and write a really good book. You know what yep. I mean? I think that's what makes him unusual. Is these people that are incredible writers, but they churn out book after book after book. I'm always amazed how he'll just, you know, completely encapsulate a story and then that's it. He'll mic drop for several years and then he'll, you know, come back out again with another amazing book. Well, a perfect storm resonated with me, obviously, as a mariner at the time. I mean, I was in Alaska. That was October of 91. And I was I had I'd gotten off the boat. I was in I was in Indonesia surfing and when that storm hit. But um, you know, I spent five months a year at sea on a fit on a boat in you know, imminent peril. So when he wrote that book, it struck a chord with me. That's for sure. Deep. And I knew a lot of people from Gloucester, my brother being a lobsterman and growing up in a fishing community, um, a blue collar town on the coast of Maine. What's no blue car anymore. It's all Bentleys and BMWs now, but uh, back then it was. So, you know, that Gloucester community has taken a lot of hits over the years and I've got really good friends that grew up there. And so, it was um, kind of personal. Yeah, I can imagine how much that would resonate. So, well, speaking of you know other professions that are also somewhat dangerous, um, walk me through your journey into the world of firefighting, and then let's kind of carry on through to uh, to strong water. I almost called it smart water again. <laughs> right, that's <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I got into firefighting as a contractor, bought one engine, and got listed on the what's the virtual incident procurement system through the U.S. Forest Service. Um, they often augment their um, internal forces or government forces with private contractors. That could be food, sanitation, um, fire, firefighters, hand crews, and equipment. Even the aircraft um, often comes from private sources. So I started with one engine, a water tender, and I got into it because I met a guy at the Big Sur fire in 07. I was at a gas station coming from surfing and Big Sur, the guy had one leg and he was a vet and he had a fire engine. I said, what's going on? He goes, explain the whole thing to me. He said, you should look into it. And so I did. Um, you know, that company grew and took on a partner, expanded our mission. We worked in more and more fires. And obviously in the process of fighting fire, just really started to become aware of how big the issue was and how much help the industry and the firefighters needed um, better technology and more resources, more money, more pay, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, and they, this, the, the, the mega wildfires, if you will, that are 
affecting our planet right now are, are um, you know, just another leak in the dam, I like to say, the global climate catastrophe that we're experiencing. Um, but it's a big issue. And um, firefighters and the, the companies that make the existing technologies and equipment are all doing the best they can. I just believe that we need to do better. And so um, I looked at the existing retardants and, and talked to a lot of people in the industry, and they convinced me that there needed to be a different type of, of product out there, one that was that could be used in exposure protection, but that was also made for direct attack suppression to knock the fire out rather than try to control it and manage it. And so we have a product that from the air um, can be used um, it's, we're not a long-term retardant. Uh, it's a biodegradable product. One of the big things I need, wanted to solve was I needed something cancer. Firefighters have the highest rate of occupational cancer of any occupation. So that's a big deal. You know, obviously I'm an environmental guy. I work for Patagonia where that's a corporation that's established itself as a, a benchmark for doing the right thing, using their profits and their, their brand image to affect, um, change, in an environmental capacity, and they're really good at it. So obviously, I've been inspired to build. If I'm going to build a company, I'm going to follow that lead. And so we had to. In one of the the um, benchmarks for success with the product was that it needed to be biodegradable, non-carcinogenic, which we are. We meet Prop 65 standards. Um, We've got a woman by the name of Arlene Bloom on my board. She's a PhD chemist. I, I surround myself with really smart people because. Uh, my, I myself am not very smart, <laughs> highly driven, not very smart. But um, and what smarts I did have, I knocked the hell out of through action sports injuries. So one of these really smart people is a woman by the name of Arlene Bloom. And she I met through the head of environment, a famous mountain climber by the name of Rick Ridgway, who's on my board. I went to Patagonia and, and was introduced to him. I said, listen, I'm starting this business. I'm thinking about changing the, the retardant paradigm. And I'm looking at solving some environmental issues in the firefighting service and certainly looking to do a better job against these monsters that are that are attacking us every year. Sure enough, I entered the conversation with the guy and he's like, wait, I think I know one of the foremost minds on toxic retardants in the world. And he literally picks up his phone in his office, calls Arlene. Yep. She's the foremost mind on toxic retardants in the world. She's been battling companies that make retardants that are in clothing and pillows and, and couches that actually, when they burn, they, they create a gas that's so toxic, it can permeate Nomex suits and is transdermally toxic. She did studies on pregnant women um, being exposed to these chemicals in clothing and causing issues um, with their unborn child. And so and she also started the group called the Green Science Policy Institute. They're basically a de facto litmus for green chemistry. So I'm starting out here with an idea, like a, a, a big, broad stroke idea. And then all of a sudden, I'm like within the first week, I'm talking to the foremost mind on, on retardant technology in the world. And she was a famous mountain climber herself. She was the first uh, female American team to climb K2. She's a PhD at Berkeley. Um, she's a chemist at UC Berkeley. And um, I got with her and she convinced me that it was a fight worth fighting. And she's obviously uh, very aware of climate change and the fire issues and the wildfire issues in the world. 
And she thought if we could help clean up the products that we're using in the fight, that she was all for it. She helped lead me to a chemist that helped lead me to, and then help me in outreach to people with deep pockets that could help fund the initiative. And I've been bootstrapping it along for many years while running the contracting business, actually fighting fire um, to the point where we've now reached an inflection point in the industry where there's a door that's opened for us that speaks to the efficacy of our product and the performance metrics of our, and the use um, of our product. And that's in internally tanked rotary wing assets. So helicopters that operate as quick reaction forces. Um, so sort of like the opposite of a large um, battalion of, of uh, in the army, it's, this is a, a smaller, quick responding force that can get to the problem quicker and hit it with more firepower and superior firepower before it grows out of control. And we are especially well suited to be used in these helicopters because one, we're not corrosive. Um, helicopters have a lot of moving parts that are critical to staying in aloft and corrosivity is a bad thing for them. Um, and moreover, they are made for um, direct attack suppression tactics, meaning engaging the flanks of the fire or in front of the fire or actually on burning fuel loads to knock the fire out rather than using long-term retardants to try to control it, to give ground cr crews the ability to fight it better. These fires today with the fuel loads and the temperatures and the unmanaged forests and the growing urban sprawl and the houses that are in places that burn very badly, they grow to catastrophic sizes very quickly, and they're overwhelming the traditional tactics and technologies. And so we believe um, and we know through experience that um, our product can help significantly augment these QRF forces. So we're in the process. I've got two incredible firefighters on my team. Um, one, Kent Hamilton. He was the branch chief of aviation safety for the entire U.S. Forest Service. He retired and joined my team in January. And then Division Chief Shane Glaze from San Bernardino County. They were an early adopter of our product for ground use, playing defense and exposure protection. The chief retired after a 33-year career, and he knows how important my tech is. He got to know me over the years, and he joined our team in January. So and that's critical because – and these guys are – heroes, right? They've spent their entire life looking out for the well-being of millions of people. And they've committed their entire life to it. Um, and to have them on my team means everything to me. And where it's important to have them because it, we're, the industry is so fraternal. It's a, it's a culture of its own. And you really need guys with that level of clout to help you open doors. And I, and I get it. And I, I respect that. You know, I, I get that, you know, these chiefs that have, are responsible for millions of people's lives, you know, they've got to focus. And if, if you're going to engage with them, you better have your shit together, have your shit in a sock and have some experience. So have them on my team is critical. And then the timing here with the emergency, these QRFs, companies like Colson Aviation that are building um, Blackhawks <clears throat> with these internal tanks, Chinooks with 3,000 gallon capacity that deploy them on the fire um, in a rapid response manner 
is really important. And I think it's the, it's the future of aviation firefighting. I, and I firmly believe that we need these to expand on this model. And how we fit in is that we actually provide the mix and load services. I have a crew of firefighters in what's called a mobile batch plant. So it's a mix station that we move to from an airbase to directly to the firefront. We mix and load in a mobile system. The helicopters can draw material, our product up from into their fuselages and then fly a very short distance to the firefront and engage it. So we're enabling them to, um, to facilitate more turns onto the fire per hour and create a sustained attack of suppression capacity onto that fire from nearby. Whereas fixed wing bombers having to come from airfields that are far away, it's, it just takes more time. And so we're enabling those quick reaction forces to increase their suppression capacity of water by a minimum of 10x. So a thousand gallon tank is now 10,000 gallons of suppression capacity per drop. We can at full tilt do about eight drops an hour from a well-positioned mobile batch plant. Um, so that's 10,000 gallons of suppression capacity in a, in a Blackhawk, 30,000 gall 30, gallons of suppression capacity in a Chinook times eight per hour, times an eight-hour shift. And now the FAA has approved night flying. So the air ops don't stop when the sun goes down. We can effectively fly, you know, 16 hours a day and stay ahead of the thing and beat them down. I'm not saying you're going to win every battle, but this is certainly something that we believe in and see as um, a very important component of um, wildland firefighting moving forward. Well, I mean, there's so many things to unpack from there, but while we're on the transportation element, um, one of my my good friends who was my truck partner in, Ca in Anaheim in California, so he went to a lot of the, the wildland fires, he partnered with, and I don't know where they're at now, but it was basically taking this drone technology that obviously is everywhere now um, and created an early warning system for the wildland community. So they had, I think, some sort of satellite imaging that initially would show a hotspot, then they would send a drone there to actually collect information. And that sounds then like a precursor to your QRF that then would send a helicopter so to a fire that's still somewhat in the incipient phase before it becomes that huge wind-driven fire that we're dropping human beings into with, you know, axes and shovels and, you know, progressive hose lines that really, you know, is, is outgunned by any sort of wind-driven fire. Yep. And the fuel loads. And now they're responsible for thousands of homes that are built, quite frankly, out of stuff that burns and it shouldn't be built in places where they shouldn't be. Um so these firefighters are putting themselves on the line um, to protect people's homes when, where, they, where they shouldn't be. And, uh, but that's just a fact. There'd be 40 million people in California. We've all got to live somewhere. It's a beautiful state. Um, and not everybody wants to live in the city. Um, the, uh, what's really exciting is that I, I think we're on the forefront of, of a big change in the industry. And uh, I like change and I like challenge and I like new territory. I always need to keep moving. I like the, like my favorite thing is a road trip with the music blaring and the road just unfolding in front of me. Cause like what's, what's around the next corner. So I see, you know, we're playing a small role in this, this big shift and I'm just trying to give them a better bullet, you know, to do a better job and to give our first responders 
something better to fight with. That's all. That's it. So they deserve it. Well, I know you talked about um, you know the toxicity. Now, just to make sure that I'm not, you know, there might be a kind of mutual friend connection here. Is Arlene involved in the research for PFAS, PFAS, the the carcinogen? Well, yeah. Our product could easily be a replacement technology for the class B fuels that are used to suppress aviation. Um, uh, you know, the, most of that stuff, the PFAS is in the aviation firefighting foams. So it's, it seeps into the ground. It's highly carcinogenic. Um, and yeah, we could be a, uh, you know, a, a replacement tech for that. Um, our product could be used in industrial suppression and big refineries um, chemical plants because it could be phase changes of viscosity under pressure. It doesn't have oil. So when you pump it through a line, it goes down in viscosity. When it comes out, it congeals again and sticks and wraps and clings and smothers. It, it you know, we look at, um, structural fires. If the water's 10 times more effective, you use 10 times less water. A lot of damage in structural firefighting is done by water. There's the, 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 these multi-story buildings, water just pouring down through the building does a lot of excess damage. So we could mitigate that. And yes, Arlene has been instrumental in the uh, PFAS issue as she has against many other different classes of chemicals that are um, polyphenol exhalates and things like that. A lot of things that are way over my head, but she's been on that for most of her career. It's a big deal. I mean, the PFAS issues a number one, uh, a big, you know, it's on the, the DOD's checklist. Hopefully they need to clean up the act. And in Australia, there are big class action lawsuits because of communities that are in or, in or near these military installations and air bases have drawn direct correlation to the water contamination from these PFAS chemicals to the cancer hotspots. And so it's, it's, it's another fight we could fight, but right now I'm focused on, you know, this mission centric. And I started out with the intention of trying to help the wildland firefighting community and we'll uh, tackle that first. And I hope to expand the company out into these other verticals, if you will. Well, it sounds like um, car fires would be another good application because- Yeah, the batteries. Well, just everything. Like Tesla batteries. You Tesla think, batteries. Yeah, well, yeah. that too. But also, I mean, just take the traditional car. It's always baffled me as a firefighter. Usually we'll deploy- a hose line and use water. Well, if you really look at a car, it's a steel frame with a bunch of class B, you know, oil-based components to it. Plastics, you know, the the tires, I mean, all those things, the gas in the engine, it's all class B. And we are taught in, as, you know, beginner firefighters, class A is paper and wood and class B is, you know, oil-based. Yet we treat the car fire like a class A fire. And I've seen, you know, Anaheim had a, a pre-plumbed um, foam tank and when you watch foam on a car fire, it's incredibly effective. So it sounds like, you know, the strong water, again, would be a great way to efficiently, you know, because it's, it's a dumpster fire. You're not saving anything in a car fire. Yeah, we've done head-to-head -head tests against Class A foams, and we're the, our performance metrics are leaps ahead of the foaming agents. Foaming agents are break water, uh, the surface tension of water, and allows it to penetrate into areas better, really. I mean, it's just so dish soap. And there have been a tool, the class A foam can be found on most engines and our product can be poured into the same hopper and flow through the same proportioning system and used in the same capacity in direct suppression. And we can be applied as an exposure um, protection um, tool. So it's ambidextrous in that respect. 
So I've got a guy, Rob Belong, coming on, who is the lawyer from um, the Dark Water film. So the town oh, yeah. that's being poisoned by the forever chemicals. And a mutual friend, Tonya Cronin, who's behind Responder Wipes, and now she has a um, firefighter gear decontamination business. I think it was Arlene she was talking about. So um, we're having an issue now where they're realizing we have forever chemicals in our gear itself so forget the yep. AFFF and the the FOS check and all these things that we're exposed to even our gear when we're sweating when we're training there's a potential for that too so i think that she was someone that i if it's the same person that i was going to reach out to as well from the from the biochemical um lens as well to learn more about that right yeah no it's an important subject and it's an area of focus that needs to be um tackled for sure. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I get interviewed, I've had done a bunch of interviews and I just did this free think video and I, I, a lot of the, uh, editorialists want to, they, they like controversy. And so I, I'm not here to say that the guys that the existing chemicals and retardants are being used are bad and they're bad guys. They're, they're tools that have been implemented into the trade and are being used effectively. And they've played a big role in helping fight fire. What, what I'm here to do is just try, we need to evolve. The problems are evolving. And so I'm just trying to help the industry evolve. That's all. Well, looking at it from the other side as well, it's, I was just thinking when you were talking before, all the people I hear who poo-poo global warming are people who work in an office that's air conditioned, you know. Yeah, they're not tuned in with nature. No, but everyone that's talked to me about seeing it with their own eyes are naturists, they're wildland firefighters, they're divers, they're the people that are out there seeing the the effects over decades. As an action sports guy, I've been chasing storms my whole life, snow and waves. And as an undersea archaeologist that traveled all over the world, lived in third, fourth world environments, um, where you are directly in, in living in nature, you know, like I said, I got malaria. You know, I the Madagascar job. We we're in this tropical island where people, where natives lived that were living in prehistoric, you know, conditions. And so, you um, through all these experiences, I just have gained a sensitivity or connection with um, the planet that I think a lot of people don't have. Um, surfers are unique that way. We're immersed in nature when we do our sport, whether even it's in an urban, you know, if you're surfing in LA, you're still in the ocean. You, had, you could have dolphins and sharks swimming around you. Um, so you're in this parallel universe, if you will, it's, and you see how vulnerable it is um, if you're in it every day. And certainly I think that has um, contributed to my um, environmental disposition is this realizing how fragile it is. I mean, you look at us, we're like a marble that's like hurtling around in space, right? I mean, how much atmosphere is there above us? When you zoom out and you look at our situation, it's it's precarious. This planet, and you travel the world for 30 years like I have, it's just not that big. It's a small place, man, and we've got to take care of it. Um, so just trying to do our part there with strong water for sure. And with one small problem, one small, I, I, I wrote a bunch of poetry after I lost my arm and I wrote, wrote this poem. One, um, one of the lines was one small tear in a world that's weeping. So I guess this 
where the fire thing is. It's just it's just one little sliver, one little problem that I just happened to, to bite onto. Well, we had such an, a unique perspective during COVID where everything shut down and, you know, we saw Mother Nature wanting to heal. And I talked about this on an interview recently. Um, and, you know, so that in itself, you know, the ozone layer starting to close and all these amazing things. And then sadly, you know, it went completely opposite way again. But the other thing, and you'll be familiar with this being from California, when I lived in um, Burbank, in LA, like you could barely see, you know, 50 meters ahead of you because of the smog. So even if you are not buying into the global warming element, we'll look at the state of our rivers and our, you know, oceans and, and the air. Let's the just atmosphere. Yeah. So right. let's fix that first. And I guarantee you a byproduct will be that the earth will get healthier. Right. I mean, that's, there's a subject. Um, they're just starting now to fully quantify the effects of wildfire smoke on humanity. The human health impact is massive. The air quality indexes um, for sustained period of times in California in these high, high population areas are getting bad and they're going up. Um, I, there was a study in Brazil. There was a certain percentage of COVID people that contracted COVID there. There was a disproportionate <clears throat> a number of folks in Brazil that had a higher it had a greater impact on their lungs and they attributed that from the smoke from the fires in Australia the year before that had hung over their country for months at a time. There was a high index of particulates in the air from the Australian wildfires that burned the year before COVID struck. And so, you know, that's a big focus. I feel like if we're able to look, the one thing with fire is wildfires, we need to manage our forests better, right? We need to hire people, train them, we need to put more effort into control burns. We need to get out there and manage, clear out the forests. We need to build homes out of materials. The insurance companies should be mandating this. They're taking it on the chin out of stuff that doesn't burn um, and building them in places that don't burn as bad. And then firefighters don't have to go into these places and we can let fire burn and control it. Um, you know, this notion of knocking out every fire is not necessarily the right tactic. But it certainly is when people and structures and homes and businesses are in imminent threat, which is where, again, the quick reaction forces helicopters, they can be more tactical. They fly low and slow. They have more control over where they're dropping the material or affecting the fire versus a fixed wing high speed bomber at a higher altitude flying at a higher speed has less control over where they put the product. And so I see a, a sort of a niche for us there in that urban interface. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people are intrigued. So before we get to the closing questions, where can people learn more about Strong Water and where are other you know, places online that they can reach out to you? Um, well, strongwatertech.com is my website, <clears throat> our company website. And, um, you know, I, I, I was after working in my neighborhood here, the CZU fires, I was written up in men's journal. There's stuff online in men's journal and a bunch of other different publications out there. Um, but one of my goals um, this fire season is to get a drop on a live fire. We're, we're in the process of getting what's a mil, considered a mil spec for the product. So um, we can't actually deploy it this season, it's going to take another several months to get this QPL, a forest service standardization test 
um, finish, which takes too long and costs too much money and is a big barrier to entry. And it's a barrier um, in a lot of respects, but we're going to check the box. We're in the process of getting that done. And we've got verbal commitments from some of the largest counties in the state to transition to the use of our product with their QRFs next year. So one of my big goals this summer is to just do a test drop and to videotape it and then get it out there in the press because we know that the suppression capacity, once we start dropping, there's going to be no ignoring what happens. We've already done flight tests and drops and dispersion tests with large Ericsson Aviation got behind us. Their head of R&D is no longer with them. It was this guy named Jeff Baxter. He was uh, one of the top guys at SpaceX for Elon Musk. So he's a genius engineer. He and his brother run um, a company called Baxter Aerospace. And he's a huge proponent for our product. He tested a number of different um, solutions out there when they were developing um, methods and, and technology for Ericsson. Um, so my goal this year is to get some drops done on a live fire, get it well-documented, and then push it through all these vetting channels and, and um, get, some, get the word out there, get ready for next season. I've also got the largest paper company in the world is CMPC Paper. Um, they're in Chile. And um, the good fortune of knowing the grandson of the founder, Bernardo Mate. He's a young kid. He's an environmental background. He's um, one of the executives in the company. And they are um, one of the driving forces of fire, wildland firefighting in Chile. The paper companies actually own the fleets of air assets and have hundreds of firefighters on their staff. And there we're in negotiations with them on a fire program that does not require the Forest Service QPL. So we can, um, we're hoping to go into service with them in the coming Southern Hemisphere wildfire season, which starts in November. It would be a big proof point. So they've got um, over 30 different air assets and they're leasing internally tanked birds from Colson Aviation and the head of Colson's wildfire program, a man named Craig Lapsley, who was um, a high level fire official in, in Australia is a big, big believer in our tech. So um, I'm thinking that before we get into active fire service here in the United States, we're going to be showing you how it's done in Chile this this coming Southern Hemisphere season. Well, we talked about the uh, the fire service being siloed, and it's something that comes up a lot in conversations here. And and you know sometimes tradi tradition and progression, you know, are confused, you know, and hanging on to the old ways. But yeah, I mean, whether it's you know the strong war, whether even we talked about this with someone the other day, there's videos of, of a, just a giant blanket that you pull over a car fire. And, you know, I saw a lot of kind of, you know, guffawing in the comments on social media. But when you think that a car fire is literally going to be a write-off, you're not saving anything. And you can literally pull out a blanket and just pull it over there. Why the hell not? You know, and it's the same with all these other, you know, innovations that we're seeing. I, I think I told you about um, the uh, the founder of this jet suit, you know, that oh, now can, yeah. yeah, that has an ALS, you know, paramedic uh, wilderness rescue element to it. You've got these drones that are doing all these incredible things. So to have a QRF response via helicopter with strong water that's going to be able to not only extinguish the fire early before it, you know, puts a lot of firefighters and homeowners in danger but also not negatively affect the environment. I mean, that sounds like an innovation that we need to embrace. Yeah, I mean, innovation is the name of the game. And ironically, you know, I live right over the hill from Silicon Valley. Northern California has been burning really bad for the last 
15 years. Every year it gets worse. All these tech guys know this. All these venture capitalists over the hill, they see their they're, they're $10 million winery homes are burning down, right? Whatever. And I've been shot down by almost every single venture capitalist, formal venture capitalist. I've had to raise money in fits and starts from high wealth, high, high net worth individuals who care about the problem. Um, I don't know why the big tech guys, they, they, the, the paradigm is this. I'm going up against a single incumbent technology using aviation firefighting. They can sign all their product and all their equipment and men to their customers and they get paid when stuff burns. We'll try taking that financial spreadsheet into a venture capitalist who's looking at a thousand X multiple in the next tech widget that's coming out. Whereas, you know, like that we need these, we need the money, these tech guys, these geniuses over the hill to invest in the people that protect their properties in their lives. And I, I, if there's any one area of real frustration that I've had is that, is that I've, I spend most all of my time raising money and bootstrapping this thing. And I've been in Silicon Valley giving pitches when it was filled with smoke and they still shot me down because I didn't meet the number requirements. You know, we didn't fit their program. These innovators need to step out of their box and help firefighters, quite frankly. It's my opinion. They need to, you know, our first responders need them. You know, my neighbor is Joby Aviation. Talk about drones. Um, He's a guy, Joe Ben, had a couple successful exits. Really, really smart guy, I'm told. And he just got a ton of funding for automated flight drones. He's doing these multi-prop. He's got a big project with uh, Joby Aviation. And uh, I've been, Joby, if you're listening, I'm trying to, uh, I think we could do great things in the fire service. You know, that idea of uh, automated initial attack swarming drones with the capacity to spray a certain amount of, a suppressant onto a fire start. It could get there quickly without men or larger helicopters. You know, are they going to stop all the fires? No, but it could be a tool. It could be very effective to help protect this amazing place we live in, you know? Absolutely. And I think that's the problem. I've, it comes up over and over again. There's there's always a focus on the the one or two times it, it won't work, whether it's the welfare system, whether, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, but there was this time where, yeah, there was that time. That doesn't mean that we can exclude all the other times where it will work. You know, there's so many people on welfare that have got back on their feet and then joined the, uh, the workforce again and done great things. And yes, yep. there are people that are abuse it. There are, you know, corporations that abuse the tax system. We have those abusers, but most people in the middle will benefit. And it's the same with this. So, you know, I, I think it's great. I mean, there's some real, innovation that's that's come on the show you know whether it's using e-medicine in the 911 system to eliminate a lot of the calls that our firefighters shouldn't be going on whether it like i said it's the the jet suit responding to a climber that's fallen off a cliff or whether it's you know strong water proactively eliminating a small fire become before it comes a, a bomb burner and kills 19 firefighters in prescott arizona yeah our hypersensitive weather data sensing satellites software that can predict fires better and allocate resources to areas of high risk or um, just detecting a fire start more accurately and quickly. I mean, there's just a room for a lot of of growth in the technology of firefighting. Absolutely. Well, I would love to just throw a few closing questions at you before I let you go, if that's okay. 
No worries, yeah. Brilliant. All right, well, then the first one, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our very diverse discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, you know, I do, I go back to that Mark Sisson, that primal blueprint, because it breaks down um, eating, um, you know, that's just that DNA feeding uh, really so well. Um, if you want to read an amazing book about the fire, uh, the history of wildland firefighting, uh, The Big Burn, that's an, just an incredible story. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting. I've been, I've been reading, I, I tend to be a nonfiction guy, but I, it's all this fundraising and uh, the intensity of being an entrepreneur. I've been, been, um, going more to fiction. I've been reading Peter Heller. He's an amazing guy. I don't know if you're right about the, um, he wrote a book called the river. Um, and Celine is an incredible, incredible author and an outdoorsman and a naturalist. Um, I stumbled onto him late in his career, but I've just been immersing myself in his books. Um, and, but there's no shortage of reading out there these days. Plenty of distractions. <laughs> I, I've got to keep my nose to the grindstone here on spreadsheets and get this thing across the line. Absolutely. Well, what about um, documentaries or films? Any of those that you love? Uh, you know, I'm not a big movie guy. I, I don't, um, it was documentary films kiss the ground that was one that came out recently that really impressed me about biodynamic farming rotational crops getting you know preserving the earth's soil that was really done really well done movie um that speaks to another huge huge systemic climate related issue and that is um preserving our soil and preserving the earth's ability to produce healthy food um but uh, I'd, I'd stick with that one. That's a good good place to start. <laughs> yeah, I had um, Joe Salatin on. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's, uh, if you watch Forks Over Knives, Food Inc., I think he's in oh, Kiss yeah, the Ground yeah. as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And he talks, you know, just a, a regular farmer in the Northeast who rotates his crops, you know, the, the grows the was grass. Was he on the Kiss the Ground? I, I can't remember. He probably was oh. if they were talking about earth quality, but yeah. I'm not 100% sure. But he's been on here a couple of times now. And again, just common sense mentality, real kind of, uh, you know, renegade in the farming industry because he's pushing back on all the, you know, the industrial farming that we're talking about. But it's just so simple. When you look at, he does what we used to do hundred plus years ago, you know, the, the, you grow the grass, the cows eat the grass, the, the chickens come behind and peck the, the insects and the cows come behind and kind of basically, you know, till the soil again naturally and they're all shitting on it and then it's all fertilized and then you come back down to the beginning again. It's so simple, but when you're going up against Monsanto and Procter and Gamble and you know, these big monsters, my buddy that did that podcast, Kyle Tierman, he's another Patagonia ambassador. He's an he's a neat kid, and his family's been in documentary filmmaking. His dad's pretty famous documentary filmmaker. I think it an award winning one, and his brother as well. Um, he uh, he did that interview with me on the microdosing, and he does it. He did before COVID. He set up this mock Academy Awards event in Los Angeles. And the recipients of awards were large corporations that were the different 
categories of the awards were um, these the water, who harmed water the most, air, who harmed air the most, human health, who harmed human health the most. And he called it the motherfucker awards. And he hired actors and comedians and Matt Taibbi, who was an incredible uh, editorialist, Rolling Stone editorialist, one of my favorite, favorite writers. And he set them up as the um, sort of the celebrities that were handing out the awards. And then he had actors in the audience play these executives from these big companies. They were winning the, the motherfucker awards for being the worst on the environment and in these different categories. And it was genius. COVID killed it. I hope he brings it back. I hope so, too. I mean, I, I heard him touch on that and I'm like, huh, I wonder what that is. And as you were talking, I'm like, oh, OK, I think I see it's like the the Darwin Awards, you know, and there's all the yeah, stupid exactly. Things. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. One of my uh, he had some neat people doing the awards. A guy I just ran into another Navy SEAL um, used to work for Vice Kaj Larson. You should interview him. The kid's amazing. Kaj, K-A-J, Larson, L-A-R-S-O-N. He's a. Uh, he went to Annapolis, was in the teams for a long time, went to Harvard, Kennedy School of Government, and then he worked for Vice News, and they did a story on my company. So I got to know him well. But he, was one of the present, he was one of the presenters at the, the Motherfucker Awards. So it was a, and I, I, I think he might've been on in the Industrial War. <laughs> I don't know what the award was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that just covers my next question because I asked for a guest suggestion. So you just gave me one. So between him and uh, Arlene, I think they've got two you know, potential people to try and connect with to, to bring on the show. Oh, cool. Right on. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question before, uh, make sure everyone know again, knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? Uh, lately, well, I mean, I surf and I try to get outside as much as I can. And I'm learning to meditate <laughs> when you're ADHD, ADD, every other anacronym in the book, it's hard. Um, but for me, it's just getting outside in nature. And that's always been my go-to. Just get, even just paddle boarding, I don't even need to surf, just get out on the water and surrounded by sea lions and sharks and sea and dolphins and wind and birds and waves. And just that it, it's been my go-to for decades and that won't change. That's where I go. Mother Nature heals. 100%. Beautiful. All right. So just to underline again, the best places online to find you um, and then learn more about Strong Water. Strongwatertech.com is our company website. And as we progress, I, there will be a blog that we will start where um, we can, it'll be, I hope to just be able to do what you're doing and reach a, a broader audience, um, bring our brave first responders to the forefront and educate people about what they do for them. Well, Jeff, I want to just say thank you again. It's been such an amazing conversation. As I said early on, you have quite the storied career and, you know, from, you know, losing an arm on a, on a boat to the recovery from that to treasure hunting to, you know, wildland firefighting. It's been, you know, an amazing conversation. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. No, oh, thank you, James. It's been a big pleasure, mate. When you reached out, I looked at what you were doing. It was a no-brainer. And uh, come back anytime, and I'll certainly stay in touch and keep you posted as we continue on. Mm -hmm.